Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for our online service here at City Church. My name is Jay. I'm the director of worship. If you're new here, we're so glad that you've joined us. We begin every service with a call to worship, and this morning we're going to read one from Psalm 95, the first six verses. So listen to these words and prepare your hearts this morning. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Would you join me as I pray? O God, our Father, may we this day join with the psalmist as he invites us into worship of you. Would you recall to our minds how how you are great and how you are our great king? Would you give us reason upon reason this morning to worship you so that we may be edified, strengthened, encouraged, and blessed and so that you would be glorified in it. God, would you help us by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's sing holy, holy, holy. Would you sing with me?
before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence depart.
City Church family, it's good to be with you. My name is Chipper. I'm one of the pastors here. We are a church aspiring to be an authentic community, walking with God in our city. It's going to be a challenge in some ways for even me to <laughs> make it through the announcements and through this sermon. There's a lot of emotion. This is our last Sunday that we are uh, pre-recording our service on Saturday night because starting next Sunday, June 6th, we'll be, Lord willing, meeting in our sanctuary again on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., and also marks the end of us meeting outdoors at First Magnitude, which we've been doing for almost a year now, which is hard to believe. So praise God for those two profound ways in which he has sustained us by giving us a really great team of people to manage this live stream and the, and the post-production that we've been doing, and also an incredible relationship with First Magnitude. Um, if you're watching this early Sunday morning and you never got a chance to check out First Magnitude, this is your last Sunday. You can come at 9 or 10.45, otherwise we'll be back in our sanctuary, again, Lord willing, starting on June the 6th. And so I'm going to pray a prayer of thanksgiving in just a few moments, but I also wanted to um, just say thank you, City Church, for persevering and for having, I think, wonderful attitudes this past year and showing a lot of grace to one another. So thank you. Uh, for doing that. We would love to be in prayer for you this week, and so we would invite you to fill out a connection card, citychurchgnv.com slash connection. If you fill that card out, uh, well, there's a, a virtual card you can fill out on your laptop or on your phone. If you put prayer requests, we pray for you on Tuesday during our staff meeting, so we would love to hear from you. Um, you can also use that card to indicate interest in the life of our church. Say hello you've been watching or listening virtually for a long time, this would be a great opportunity to say something. Say, hey, this is who I am, and hopefully we can meet you in person um, in the not-too-distant future. We worship a generous God. Part of our responsive worship as a people of God is giving generously. You can give online, citychurchgnv.com slash give, or you can come to uh, a Sunday morning service in person. Um, and give that way as well. And your generosity goes especially far, I will say, during the summer months, which are challenging months for us financially, usually because of the rhythms of life here in Gainesville and the academic calendar. We are doing, uh, we have kind of done a soft launch for a youth group of sorts this past year, uh, which is more kind of one-on-one and mentoring, but we're doing a a hike for youth. So for middle school and high school youth, we're doing a a half-day hike on June 12th, San Falasco, uh, 8.30 a.m., I think, to about noon or 12.30. It's going to be a wonderful time. Get to know some of the folks that are working with our youth now. Uh, you can just email Jay, jay at citychurchgnv.com to register. You can contact our church in whatever way, and we will make sure that uh, you get your youth, or if you are a youth, we will make sure that we get you registered. And we would love to see you on that half-day hike on June the 12th. <coughs> CGs, our community groups, are meeting for one more week, uh, then they go on a break for the month of June. So jump in, get involved in a small group this week. Uh, most of those groups, even though they're not formally meeting in June, will continue to meet informally in some capacity. Then they will, Some of them will resume in July, and then the rest will resume at the beginning, Lord willing, of August. So that's an update on our community groups. This is Memorial Day. Weekend, of course, plenty of people are traveling, but most importantly, I want to acknowledge um, that this, including for people in our congregation, this is a very hard weekend, and especially a very hard uh, Monday of reflection and grieving and lamenting and loss. And I just wanted to mention that we love you, 
and we are hurting with you, and I will be praying for you as well in just a couple of moments. Our scripture passage today is, is something. It's Ezra chapters 4 through 6. This, is, this might be kind of the gauntlet passage in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, but today we're doing Ezra chapters 4, 5, and 6. I got to tell you, though, before you click to something else on YouTube, um, that I think you're going to be profoundly encouraged, and I think you're going to be profoundly heartened by what we learn about God and his activity in the midst of great difficulty. So, Ezra chapters 4 through 6, I'm actually only going to read, mercifully, on the front end here, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and we will get to other parts of this text as we go this morning. So, Ezra chapters 4 through 6, technically, but I'm going to read Ezra chapter 4, for now, verses 1 through 5. I would encourage you to pull out a Bible and follow along with us, or the passage will also be on the screen as well. That's what chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Bersha, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Let's pray together. Lord, we do give you all of the praise and glory for sustaining us so faithfully these past 15 months. It's been long. It's felt relentless at times even hopeless in certain seasons, but you have been there every second of it, and you have given us exactly what we need. It's not what we would have chosen, but you have given us exactly what you, what you promised you would give your people, which is exactly enough, and you have certainly grown us in Christ Jesus as your people during this time, formed us spiritually, no doubt about it. Thank you for first magnitude. Thank you for the live stream and the volunteers that have made it possible, and so many other people that have worked so faithfully behind the scenes. And we do grieve with those who are hurting this Memorial Day uh, weekend. I pray that we would have discerning uh, minds to know who we should reach out to and, and encourage and even comfort and be with and sit with. We love you, Lord. We pray over the reading and the preaching of this text that it would be absolutely transform transformative, that your spirit would work in mighty ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we mark the end of our time outdoors at first magnitude and also the end of our time pre-recording our services here, uh, first it was on Thursday nights and now we do it on Saturday nights, as we mark the end of these significant uh, seasons in the life of our church, I've been doing a lot of reflecting, many of you have been doing the same, and there's lots to celebrate. God has been faithful to us. He's been kind. He's been compassionate. 
And I got to tell you, as I was just saying, I have been so impressed with our church family. You've been gracious, you've been sacrificially generous, it's been a joy to be one of your pastors. But there's also much to grieve and to lament. These past 15 months have been a season of relentless trials, and many of the trials have been very hard to figure. For example, Scripture is clear that Jesus' followers should gather corporately to put ourselves before God's Word, and to minister to one another with sacraments and songs and hugs. So why in the world would God command us to do something, tell us that this is the path to spiritual flourishing, and then allow a pandemic to interfere with it? Many of you have really wrestled with these circumstances, along with many others, expressing confusion and frustration and sometimes anger. And I get it. I mean, canceling or, or modifying corporate worship gatherings for the sake of mitigating a virus, it, it feels kind of like getting a flat tire when you're on your way to a children's hospital to drop off some balloons. I mean, it's, it's emotionally disorienting and exasperating. It appears to defeat the simplistic God has a better plan cliche since his plan literally is for us to gather regularly. So what do we make of these trials? Especially trials that seem to have zero value and even work against God's purposes for his people. It's not our goal this morning to sort all of this out theologically and philosophically and and put a bow on it, but what we will do is zoom out a bit from our immediate circumstances, which is a very biblical way to respond to suffering and trouble. Suffering tends to give us tunnel vision and an excessively narrow focus on our present circumstances that can cause despair and spiritual paralysis. So zooming out is a way to gain some perspective by remembering the experiences of God's people in the past, which often look a whole lot like our own. And that remembering gives us some resources for perseverance in the face of seemingly senseless suffering and trouble. Two exhortations this morning as we encounter the Israelites running into some big-time problems as they try to rebuild the Jerusalem temple. Number one, church, expect trials. Then number two, expect God's presence. Church, expect trials. And then number two, expect God's presence. So let's start with that first exhortation, church, expect trials. Here's what we've learned the past two weeks. Beginning in 605, B.C. until about 586 B.C., God exiled many Israelites from the southern kingdom of Judah into exile in Babylon as discipline for their idolatry and injustice. The Babylonians also essentially destroyed the city of Jerusalem and Solomon's majestic temple. But as God had promised, he 
eventually began to bring them out of exile and back to the promised land. Zerubbabel led the first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem around 538-537 B.C. And a year or so after their arrival, the Israelites began to rebuild the Jerusalem temple, starting with the foundation. Why prioritize the temple rebuild? In order to faithfully worship God in the manner spelled out for them in the law. Or to put it another way, the Israelites prioritized the temple rebuild as an act of spiritual faithfulness. However, the process of rebuilding the temple was, to use what has got to be 2020's word of the year, it was fraught. We saw last week in Ezra chapter 3 that once the foundation of the new temple had been laid, the older generation of returning exiles wept with a loud voice. And they wept because they realized that the new temple was not going to match the splendor of Solomon's original temple. Now, as in this morning, we encounter an even greater difficulty here in Ezra chapter 4. As you can see in verses 1 through 2, when when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, that is the, the Israelite tribes returning from exile, heard about the temple rebuild, they approached the exiles and expressed a desire to help. Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Now, adversaries helping immediately sounds dubious, doesn't it? I mean, on paper, this offer it looks genuine, even kind. But circumstantially, it's like, it's like that classic kindergarten conundrum when you're building a block tower and Tommy walks over to help. On one hand, you appreciate the offer, but on the other hand, you know that Tommy has historically been a thorn in your kindergarten side, so you are naturally very suspicious. You could use some help, but you're not sure if you want Tommy's help. That's the kind of situation Zerubbabel found himself in, which explains his ice-cold response in verse 3. You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. And you know what? Zerubbabel's read on the situation was exactly right. After he declined their offer, the true colors of these adversaries became apparent. Verses 4 and 5. Then the people of the land, that is the adversaries, discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they didn't just take their ball and go home. They made life miserable for the returning exiles by doing everything they could to frustrate the rebuild. And not only that, they kept the misery crusade going until the reign of King Darius, who reigned after King Cyrus, which indicates that they kept antagonizing the exiles until around the time the temple was eventually finished, which meant a solid 20 years of antagonism 
That is everything you worry about with a Tommy. Except in this case, he sticks with you until you graduate from college. The reason for the antagonism was this. Here's the reason, and get ready for some mental calisthenics here, but you can do it. These people of the land, as they're called, they live in Samaria, which at the time was the civic center of the Persian province that these exiles found themselves in when they returned to Jerusalem, which is geographically south of Samaria, but at the time was in the same province. That province is referred to later in this chapter as a province beyond the river, that being the Euphrates River. These, these people of the land, they were not Israelites, they were an assortment of people put in Samaria from other lands by the Assyrians after the Assyrians had conquered that part of Israel that is the northern kingdom. And these are the same Assyrians that were eventually conquered by the Babylonians who were eventually conquered by the Persians who are now in power here in the book of Ezra. You might have to sit on a high hill and think about that. The people of the land eventually did learn about the God of the Israelites through a priest who you can read about in 2 Kings chapter 17. So they weren't entirely wrong when they told Zerubbabel that we worship your God as you do. The problem is they also worshiped other gods, a lot of other gods. So they didn't offer to help because they truly shared Israelite zeal for worshiping Yahweh. They offered to help because they wanted to keep an eye on these returning exiles whose presence threatened their cultural and political influence in the province. So when their more subversive plan A failed, you know, offering the help, they cranked up the blatant antagonism. Now the book of Ezra is really going to blow your mind, and not in a good way. Fans of Back to the Future 2 might really love this, though. You guys should have, you, you should have worn your graphic t-shirts today. Go ahead and put it on if you're watching online. You're going to really be into this. After verse 5, the narrative pauses for two time hops. Two time hops. The first time hop is in verse 6, which takes us from about 536 B.C. to 586 B.C., and the reign of the Persian king Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, and is mentioned in the book of Esther. The second time hop is in verse 7 all the way through verse 23 of chapter 4, which takes us to around 464 B.C. in the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes I. Why the time hops? Why pause the narrative in verse 5 and do these two time hops? Here's why. Because the author wants to show us that the antagonism from these people of the land actually didn't stop even after the temple was rebuilt. As the Israelites continued on with other rebuilding projects, and we will get to that in the book of Nehemiah, for example, you can see in these time hops that tensions escalated to the point where provincial leaders were writing letters to the king in order to force the Israelites to stop their building projects. And on at least one occasion, they succeeded, as you can see in 423. So now we are talking about, 
And hopefully you're exhausted by now because now we are talking about at least 75 years of relentless antagonism. And actually there's even more after that. Church, none of this meets expectations. None of this meets expectations. You would think that. After decades in exile, the Lord would carve out this super smooth road for the Israelites upon their return to Jerusalem, especially because they were freshly motivated to be faithful to the Lord and to worship Him and obey the regulations and the law. That's what you would think, right? But that is absolutely not what happened. I mean, we're talking the minute they took out the blocks to start the rebuild, Tommy showed up. And he stuck around for 75 years. And at times, the opposition was so intense that the rebuilding stopped entirely. If your name is Tommy, you are having a really fascinating morning, aren't you? It's not personal, I promise. Earlier, I warned you that zooming out won't answer all the questions that suffering raises. But it does remind us that faithful people should not be surprised when they encounter various kinds of trials. It does remind us that faithful people should not be surprised when they encounter various kinds of trials, including trials like human opposition and persecution, including trials like pandemics or natural disasters, including trials that directly interfere with ministries of grace, such as corporate worship, that God designed and commanded for our flourishing. The Israelites experienced this in spades right after the exile. Christians in the United States and around the world experienced this back in 1918 when the Spanish flu forced pastors to preach with scarves over their mouths, with maybe four congregants sitting anxiously in the back of the sanctuary. And oh, by the way, the... Uh, Underground church in China would like to say hello. They've been dealing with, with the BOGO, the buy one, get one, the virus, and human opposition. Church, these kinds of trials are par for the course, even for very faithful men and women of God. Why is this kind of expectations management so important? How does this help us persevere? I want to say like six or ten things, but I will limit myself for now to three things. Why is this kind of expectations management so important? How does it help us persevere? I'll limit us to just three things right now. Number one, expecting trials like this mitigates self-pity, which is a prideful spiritual sickness generally fueled by a sense of experiencing more hardships than other people are experiencing or have experienced in the past. When trials surprise us, they can easily lead us into this emotional basement of self-pity. And when self-pity goes unchecked, we end up using it to justify selfishness and idolatry. This is a very big reason why the Israelites built the idolatrous golden calf. 
They were feeling really sorry for themselves. Life was hard. And we also use self-pity to resist repentance when confronted. You know, don't you know how, how hard things are? Don't you know what I'm going through? And all of that, self-pity, it works against spiritual perseverance. Thus the need to expect trials and to remember that we're, we're really not the first people to experience difficult seasons. Number two, expecting trials reminds us, church, that we are very opposed. Church, we have a spiritual enemy who does not want us to worship the Lord. And the enemy isn't other people. It's Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. Read Ephesians chapter 6. And his whole mission is to oppose God-centered worship and promote false worship, which is idolatry. That's his mission. So of course we should expect some trials along the way, even trials that seem to interfere with our zeal to walk in faithful, worshipful obedience to the Lord. And when the trials do come, this expectation helps us remember who the true enemy is. It's not your neighbor. While simultaneously encouraging us that we're up to something that Satan thinks is worth opposing. Thinking through this is, thinking through this in our context, in the context of a pandemic is, is kind of tricky, since that trial isn't the same kind of human opposition that the returning exiles were experiencing, but... In certain places around the world, people have used the pandemic to oppose other people, including Christians. Plus, the, the pandemic and, and other national circumstances have unleashed infighting and, and polarization that threaten the integrity of Christian worship and community life. So in our present moment, expecting trials is still a very helpful way to remember who the true enemy is which helps us refocus on opposing him rather than on opposing one another. And while we're on the subject, I am convinced that one of the greatest problems and maybe failures that professing Jesus followers have dealt with this past year has to do with misidentifying the enemy. It's not your neighbor. It's not your brother or sister in Christ. Number three. Third reason why expectation management helps us persevere. Expecting trials reminds us that all is never lost for the people of God. Now I'm going to kind of get back into that history a little bit. So bear with me. The last verse of Ezra chapter 4 resumes a narrative we paused before the time hops, if you're still tracking with me. It brings us back to the point at which the people of the land were originally trying to frustrate Israelite efforts to rebuild the temple. And there in Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, we find that the discouragement became so overwhelming that the Israelites eventually did stop building the temple. And they didn't just take a snack break. Construction stopped until the second year of the reign of King Darius. In 520 B.C. 
So for somewhere between 10 and 15 years. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, we find the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesying to the Israelites. And if you read the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, which I, I would encourage you to do, you will find that he was telling the Israelites, he was saying, yo, you guys are in some serious spiritual trouble because you stopped the temple project. So you might want to get back on that. Now, I, I understand the opposition. I understand things have been very hard, but keep going anyway. Keep being faithful. So they restarted the temple project. They restarted it only to experience Tatanai. Then the governor of the province they were in tried to shut them down again. But instead of stopping, they told Tatanai, and you can see this in chapter 5, verse 13, actually, we're going to keep going here because back in the day, King Cyrus himself made a decree that we could build this. So Tatanai wrote a letter to King Darius, and this letter predates the letters the time hops refer to, to ask him to search the royal archives in Babylon to see if King Cyrus really did make that decree. And then in Ezra chapter 6, we find that Darius agreed to conduct this search. And what did his search party find in Babylon? You can see this in verses 2 through 3. They found a scroll with the following written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Bingo! There's the record. So King Darius wrote back to Tatanai saying, hey man, we found the record. So here's the thing. You see this in chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. You and your buddies need to get out of the way and let them rebuild. And not only that, take the tax revenue you typically send to me and give it to the Israelites to help them with the rebuild. And also give them everything they need each day for their sacrifices. And finally, and you see this in verse 11, I think it is, if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. And you know what, church? In 516 B.C., you see this in Ezra chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, they finished the temple. Seriously, after all of that, they finished. This whole account we were just considering is, is exhausting. I mean, you're exhausted. Imagine living it, though. But they finished. And when they finished, they dedicated the temple and then they celebrated with great joy, as you see in verse 16. They had a celebration, they dedicated it, they had a celebration. And then on the appointed day, they faithfully kept the Passover, which was a very timely opportunity to check this out, gain some perspective by remembering the ways in which their ancestors had experienced both trials and the hand of God in the past. Like I said, expecting trials reminds us that all is never lost. Right? I mean, at any point, no matter how hard things might be for you, at any point a foreign king could forcibly take up your cause by threatening to impale your adversaries with beams from their own houses. That could happen to you at any time. But seriously, though, expecting trials. Here's what it tells us. Expecting trials also means expecting seasonality and reprieve and deliverance. There will be trials, but there will not 
always be trials. And the Lord will use surprising people and events to do amazing things in the midst of your trials. And He will accomplish His purposes in you and through you. And even if your life is exceptionally hard, remember that the new Jerusalem, the future heavenly home that awaits the people of God, that city knows nothing of these trials. So what does this mean? Here's what it means. It means keep going. It means keeping faithful and worshiping the Lord. And even when circumstances interfere with even great things like corporate worship and ministering to one another in person, God will provide what we need to keep us going. He will do it. He has done it, and He will do it. Commit to being faithful, and God will give you what you need. He always has another trick up His sleeve. And haven't we experienced that? this year. I mean, we have lost a lot as a church, as a country, as a world, no doubt about it. And that's worth lamenting and grieving. But what what did God give us, especially City Church? What did He give us? Of all things, He gave us a microbrewery and some really outstanding leaders and volunteers and some houses with really great backyards and patios. And we live in Florida, so we have great weather. Is any of this ideal? Not necessarily. But is it enough? Absolutely. And accordingly, God still has used this year to nourish us spiritually and to make us more like Jesus. That didn't stop. That kept going. And I've heard testimonies accordingly. How is it, though? that God has sustained us this past year and use of what we've experienced in the spiritually. How does that happen? How does that work? That brings us to our second exhortation. Church, even as we expect and experience trials, expect God's presence as well. Expect his presence too. There are at least two statements in our passage, and this will be brief and then we'll end. There are at least two statements in our passage this morning that should encourage even the most despairing hearts. Here's Ezra chapter 5, verse 5. Here's what it says. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. As others have noted, pagan kings, you know, they they had... spies to keep an eye on things. You know, they, they, they put spies throughout the empire so they could kind of watch out and make sure that their interests were being protected and not threatened. But the Israelites, they didn't have spies. They had the eye of the Lord. They had the eye of the Lord. And accordingly, he was providentially with them in the midst of their opposition to keep them going and to ultimately arrange a favorable political climate for the rebuild. He was right in the thick of it. Now here's Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. They, that is the Israelites, finished their building by decree of the God of Israel. Did you catch that? And by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This theme restates with astounding clarity a theme that emerges right at the beginning of Ezra chapter 1. Okay, sure, King Cyrus made the decree that the exile should return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, but it turns out that he was a glorified press secretary. God was really one making the decrees. 
And he was present with the Israelites in such a powerful way that, and you see this in Ezra chapter 1, he was stirring up King Cyrus to make his decree and stirring up the first wave of exiles to return. That's how present God was in the thick of all of this. In church, we can see God's presence everywhere, even beyond those two statements I just read. I mean, he sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah and, and spoke through them to, to get the temple rebuilt back in gear. And use pagan rulers like King Darius to make sure they had enough resources for the rebuild. God was present with his people in every way imaginable. He was guiding them, he was providing for them, and he was protecting them. Do you see this? How much of that presence did the Israelites realize at the time? Probably not all of it. In fact, maybe just a fraction of it. But boy, do we see it now. And even in the midst of seemingly relentless difficulties, we should also be relentlessly encouraged. What promises do we have today that reaffirm God's presence with Jesus' followers? What promises do we have today? In a moment, I'm going to read a few of those promises, and and I'm just going to let that be the end of our time this morning. That's just going to be it. But before I do that, remember this. These promises are given to us by a God who knows exactly what it's like to experience trials in the midst of faithfulness. That's effectively a summary of Jesus' public ministry, especially at the end. He was opposed by religious authorities, he was opposed by his own disciples, and he was opposed by Satan himself. But he persevered because Jesus was and is God incarnate. And his mission ultimately was a trial, namely the cross and the resurrection and his ascension into the presence of God the Father. So when you hear the promises that I'm about to read, remember that God gives these promises in the context of genuine empathy born from his own experience. Do you see this? He knows our pain and he knows exactly what we need to deal with it. These are not promises issued from a cold, dark castle. And so here are the promises. And so he tells us this, us being children of God who have put their hope in Jesus. And none of these promises are ever threatened by extenuating circumstances, including trials. Matthew 28 Verses 19 and 20. This is Jesus speaking. Listen to this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John 10, 27 through 30. This is Jesus again. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. How about John 14? John 14, 27. This is Jesus again. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. How about John 16, 33? This is Jesus again. 
I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Amen. Every week at City Church, we participate in the Lord's table together. And you know why we do this, right? To remember. Works out really well, doesn't it? We do this. As, as sojourning exiles awaiting our true home in the New Jerusalem, we do this in order to remember Christ crucified and raised for us and to remember Christ with us, his presence with us until the very end of the age, primarily now by the agency of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, in the night that he was to be betrayed, shared a meal with his disciples, and during the meal he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. And then in a similar manner, after the meal, Jesus took the cup, and as he poured it, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. And the Apostle Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is an opportunity for you, as you're watching or listening, to take whatever elements you have that are closest to the bread and the cup and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. If you're watching, you wouldn't say you're a follower of Jesus. We're so glad you're watching, listening. Would you Instead of taking a meal that you wouldn't say you believe in, reflect, meditate on this meal, um, and consider what we've just been preaching about. We would love to have a conversation with you. I hope we get to meet you at some point. Write to us, meet us in person. We would love to have a dialogue. I'm going to pray for us, and then you can eat and drink. Lord Jesus, we do praise you for this meal in a way that it nourishes us in such a timely and appropriate way in light of our text. Help us remember your presence. You are with us even now as we eat. We need that reminder as we struggle and suffer. We need that reminder as we enter into a season that is very unknown on this earth. We don't know what will happen in the coming weeks and the coming months, but we do know that you will be with us. For that, we give you praise. And we ask that this would be a space to confess sin, bring it to the light, and freshly enjoy the grace of God in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every 
joy he sends me comes a sweet and glad surprise where he may lead me i'll follow my trust in him repose and every hour in perfect peace i'll sing he knows he knows and every hour in perfect peace i'll sing he knows he knows step I see before me, tis all I need to see, the light of heaven more brightly shines when earth's illusions flee, sweetly through the silence came his loving follow me. Trust in Him repose, and every hour in perfect peace, I'll sing. He knows, He knows, and every hour in perfect peace, I'll sing. He knows, He knows. Oh, blissful. Is blessed not to know. He holds me with his own right hand and will not let me go. He rolls my troubled soul to rest in him who loves me so. Where he may lead me, I'll follow my trust in.
Amen. Let's keep singing. worshiping with you this morning, whenever you might uh, be watching or listening 
Uh, just a reminder that if you have been watching these services virtually, um, that starting next Sunday, so on June the 6th, you'll have to wait until 9 a.m. Uh, to watch our live stream. So we'll stream our service at 9 a.m. during our 9 a.m. service. And it'll be really obvious on our website and our YouTube channel how to do that. We're going to send out a lot of information. So 9 a.m., you can watch it live. Or if you can't watch live at 9 a.m., the service will stay available after that. It'll, it'll process and become available for you to watch anytime after that. On that note, and in light of this focus on God's presence, hear this uh, blessing from Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and, and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy 